the lesson, we are going to do a review, first of all, of what we studied in Daniel chapter 2, because Daniel chapter 2 is parallel to Daniel chapter 7. You remember that yesterday we studied about Nebuchadnezzar's image, as it's called. The head was composed of what? Gold. The breast and arms were made of? Silver. The belly was composed of? Bronze. The legs were made of? Iron. And then you have the feet, the ten toes. Do you still have iron in the feet? Yes. Does Rome continue in the feet? Yes. But then an added element uh, is uh, placed in the feet. And what is that added element? The clay. And then finally you have a stone that becomes a huge mountain. That's the setting up of Christ's kingdom. Was that uh, study last night clear in your minds? Yes? It's nice to have it in written form, isn't it? See, the previous series that I've done on Genesis and on the sanctuary and uh, oh, a little over a year, maybe a year and a half ago, I did a series uh, called What Jesus Said. Uh, it was just basically a lecture. There were no uh, copies of, of the lessons with questions and answers. Uh, so this is a little bit different uh, method than I've used previously here, but I like it because it gives you a chance to go through the material beforehand and you're much, in much more in tune with what we're studying. Now, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, instead of metals, what do we have? We have beasts. And uh, I'm not going to study every detail about the beasts because it's really not necessary. I'm not going to tell you what the lion's wings mean and what the heart of a man that is given to the lion represents and, you know, the four wings of the leopard. Uh, what I want us to notice tonight is the sequence of beasts and how they are parallel to Daniel 2. Now, before we do, what does the head of gold represent? Babylon. What do the breast and arms of silver represent? Medo-Persia. What does the belly of bronze represent? Greece. What do the legs of iron represent? Rome. What do the feet mixed with iron and clay represent? The divisions of Rome and the clay represents what? The fact that it wasn't only, they weren't only political kingdoms, they were political kingdoms that were mixed with what? with religion, with the religious power. In other words, you had a combination of church and state when the Roman Empire was divided. Now I want you to notice that Daniel 7 follows the same sequence. You have a lion, which is equivalent to the gold. You have a bear, which is equivalent to the silver. You have the leopard, which is equivalent to the bronze. You have the iron, which is equivalent to the dragon beast or the terrible nondescript beast. And then instead of ten toes, you have what? You have ten horns. And instead of the clay, which represents the religious power, in Daniel 7, what do you have? You have a little horn. Are you with me? And then uh, the stone in the mountain in Daniel chapter 7, you have the son of man that comes to his father to receive the kingdom and the time comes when he sets up his everlasting kingdom on earth. 
Do you see how Daniel 7 follows the same sequence as Daniel chapter 2, but using different symbols and adding information that we did not find in Daniel chapter 2? Is that clear in your mind? This is critical because we're going to talk about the identity of the little horn tonight, especially. And uh, there's a lot of speculation about who the little horn represents, but there's no need to speculate. Because once you realize that Daniel 7 begins to fulfill in the days when Daniel lives, and it continuously fulfills one step after another, culminating with the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom, you can know exactly where to look for the little horn in history. Are you with me? Because you can see the sequence of powers and where each one of them fits within the flow of history. This is called the historical method. It's one of the principles that we studied. Remember we talked about how to interpret symbols. We talked about the need to look for the meaning of symbols in the concordance and in the marginal uh, margins of your Bibles. Uh, we studied, we uh, analyzed how important it is to study the structure of the chapter or passage that you're studying. You know, we're, I don't know whether you've noticed, but we're implementing all of those principles as we study each night. See, there are laws of biblical interpretation of prophecy. Just like when you're going to do science, when you're going to do ex scientific experiments, you have certain laws that you have to apply. When you study the Bible, there are certain laws that you also have to apply. And if you don't, you're going on a wild goose chase. And many people today are going on prophetic wild goose chases because they don't use these biblical methods. Now let's notice the key symbols of Daniel 7. And we'll go through this quickly because we've discussed some of these things before. What do the four beasts represent? Four what? Four kings or kingdoms. Did you notice in verse 7, in verse 17, it says that the four beasts represent four kings? But then when it talks about the fourth beast, it says the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom. There's no such thing as a king without a kingdom. Because a king without a kingdom is not a king. Right? And so the four beasts represent four kings and their respective kingdoms. By the way, we noticed also last night that God says to Nebuchadnezzar, You are that head of gold. But then he says, And after you will arise another kingdom. See, so, so the, the head of gold is not only Nebuchadnezzar, it's Nebuchadnezzar as the king and his what? And his kingdom. So whenever we find beasts, beasts represent kingdoms. Is that clear in your mind? Number two, what do the waters represent? I could give you many verses in the Bible. Um, I hope you looked up uh, Isaiah 17 and verse 12, where it compares nations with, with this uh, roar of many waters. Uh, but anyway, uh, waters represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and what? And tongues. So whenever you find a river in, in prophecy, you know, like for example, we're going to study the prophecy about the Battle of Armageddon. Ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon? It speaks there about the great river Euphrates being dried up. And many people assume, they say, well, the Euphrates goes through Iraq, so someday that river, which is not that great of a river, is going to be dried up so that the Chinese and the Japanese can come across it and attack Israel. Now, that, that sounds plausible, 
it's a sensational way of interpreting prophecy, but it ignores one fact, and that is that you're dealing with symbols. And in Scripture, waters, the waters where the harlot sits, and by the way, the name of the harlot is Babylon, and the river that ran through Babylon was the Euphrates. In other words, the harlot is sitting on the great waters of the river Euphrates. But the harlot is not literally sitting on the waters. And Revelation 17 says that the waters rep represent multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. So in other words, you have to use the rule that waters, when they're used in prophecy, represent multitudes of peoples. How many of you are understanding what I'm saying? Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. Praise the Lord. Some of you don't, but you'll catch on. Or else you're too lazy to raise your hand. It's been a long day. Number three. What is symbolized by the winds? The military, of or a military invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into Jerusalem is described as a dry what? As a dry wind of the desolate heights. His chariots like a what? Like a whirlwind. By the way, what is a whirlwind? It's when four winds meet. And then you have what? A whirlwind. By the way, when the four angels let loose their winds in Revelation chapter 7, you have the devastation of planet Earth. You have what is called the tribulation. We'll talk about that later on. So winds represent what? Warfare. So these four nations are at what? They are at war. The multitudes are at war. Number four, what do horns represent? The ten horns are ten what? Ten kings or what? Or kingdoms who shall arise from this kingdom. Now you need to understand something about horns. Beasts and horns do not mean the same thing. When you find horns in the Bible, they represent divisions of kingdoms or a king of a kingdom. Are you understanding what I'm saying? For example, we're going to study Daniel 8 and we're going to find that there's a, uh, there's a he-goat that's mentioned in Daniel 8 and it says that it had a horn on its head, this he-goat, and the horn represents its first king, which is Alexander the Great. See, when there's a horn, it distinguishes the king from the kingdom. Or it represents divisions of kingdoms. So what this is saying is that the ten horns are divisions of which kingdom? Of the Roman kingdom, of the fourth kingdom. Are you following me? Number five. What does a literal day symbolize in prophecy? I have laid on you a what? A day for a year. In prophecy, a day is equal to a year. Whenever you find in prophecy... A period of time that is referred to in days, the days mean years. And, you know, when you really think of it, um, the, the sound of the prophetic periods in itself, even without reading this text from Ezekiel, the sound has a symbolic flavor, doesn't it? For example, if I'm going to leave Fresno for three and a half years and visit some other country, I don't say, I'm going to see you in time, times, and the dividing of time. <laughs> or I don't say I'll see you in 1260 days folks or I'll see you in 2300 days evenings and mornings or I won't say don't worry folks I'll see you in 42 months 
You see, when the Bible wants to talk about literal time, it'll say, for example, in James chapter 5, that Elijah closed heaven so that it would not rain for three years and six months. It says it in normal, everyday terms. But in Scripture, whenever you find a day, the day represents a year. You need to keep that in mind when we talk about prophecy, and we need to apply that principle. Now let's take a look at the literary structure of Daniel 7. Into how many parts is Daniel 7 divided? How many, how many parts? It's divided into four parts. See, there's, four, there's one through four in this section of the lesson. Now, do you remember that on opening night when we talked about how to study Bible prophecy, that we said it's very important to understand how a passage is organized, how it's structured, the sequence that it presents. And we mentioned that many times chapters uh, run not in a linear fashion, but they run in cycles. Do you remember that? Well, the fact is that Daniel 7 has four cycles. Let me just put it here on the board. Verses 1 through 14, let's go to point number 1, and we'll amplify it on the board. Verses 1 to 14 describe Daniel's what? Vision. You read those verses, you'll find it describes the totality of the vision. The lion, the bear, the leopard, the dragon beast, the ten horns, the little horn, and then it speaks about the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, receiving the kingdom, and giving the kingdom to the saints of the Most High. The whole vision is given in the first 14 verses. So, verses 1 through 14 present the total vision. But is that all that Daniel has to say about the vision? No. So, notice verses 15 to 17. And if you'll turn in your Bibles with me, we'll take a look at this. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verses 15 to 17. It says here, after Daniel has seen the total vision, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. See, this is the reaction to the vision. He's troubled, isn't he? I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all these, all this, so he told me and made me known the what? The interpretation of these things. So in verses 15 to 17, the angel is going to provide a brief what? A brief interpretation of the vision. Did you? Uh, how many of you got interpretation in that blank? Man, amazing. Just amazing students. I try to make them, I don't quote the verse to kind of make it a little bit more difficult on you. But uh, you're sharp. Now notice verse 17. Those great beasts, here comes the explanation. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Is this an interpretation of the vision? Yes. How extensive is it? from beginning to end, but does it provide all kinds of explanations, a detailed explanation of the vision? No. It simply says that the four beasts are four kingdoms, and afterwards God is going to set up his what? His everlasting kingdom. So in verses 15 to 17, uh, actually 15 to 18, you have a brief what? 
You have a brief interpretation of the vision. Is it going over the same ground as verses 1 to 14? Yes, but now it's being what? Explained. But does Daniel still have questions about the vision, even after this brief interpretation? Yes. Notice what uh, we find in verses 18 to 22. Actually, yeah, verse 19 to 22. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceeding dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war with the saints, and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Let me ask you, does, does the question of Daniel end at the same place that the vision and the interpretation of the vision ended? Yes, it ends up with what? With the everlasting kingdom. So the third section, which is verses 19 to what? Verses 19 to 22 is a what? Is a question made by whom? By Daniel. He says, now please, he says to the angel, now go back a little bit. I want to know about the fourth kingdom. I want to know about the ten horns. I want to know about the little horn. And I want to know about the Son of Man who comes to receive the kingdom. Could you add some light on that, is what Daniel is asking. Is this clear in your mind? So how many times have we found a repetition, basically, that ends with the everlasting kingdom? Three times up till this point. You have the total vision. Then you have a brief interpretation. Then you have Daniel's request for a clarification, where he goes back to the fourth beast, the ten horns, the little horn, and the everlasting kingdom. And then the fourth uh, passage is verses 23 to 27, where the angel explains Daniel's what? Explains Daniel's questions. Because you'll notice that in verse 23, it says thus, he said, the fourth beast shall be what? A fourth kingdom. So he's going to explain, starting where Daniel asked the question, and then notice verse 27, where it ends. It says, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth, the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So how many times do you find a basic repetition of the elements of the vision of Daniel chapter 7? You find a fourfold repetition. Once again, the vision... A brief interpretation of the vision. Daniel's questions about the fourth beast, ten horns, little horn, and everlasting kingdom. And then the explanation of the angel about the fourth beast, the ten horns, the little horn, and the everlasting kingdom. Is that clear in your mind? Okay. Now let's go to the next section of our lesson, the stages of the fourth beast's kingdom. How many stages does the fourth beast have? How many stages? Three. This is very important. Notice 
Daniel chapter 7 and verses 23 and 24. This is the last explanation by the angel. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. What kingdom is that? Historically. It's Rome. Right? The same as the iron. By the way, did you notice that the legs are made of iron and this dragon beast has iron teeth? See, there you have a link between the fourth beast and the legs of iron. The fact that the legs are of iron and the teeth of this dragon beast are made out of iron. And so it's dealing with the same power. So it says the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which is Rome which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Now let me ask you something. Does this dragon have the ten horns when it first arises to power? No. It doesn't. Does the dragon beast rule by itself without horns for a while? Yes. How do we know that? Well, let's read verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Does the kingdom exist before the ten horns come up from it? Yes. But now notice the last part of verse 24. And another shall rise after them. Is the little horn on the head of the dragon beast when he first rules? Are the ten horns on the head of the dragon beast when he first rules? No. You have three stages. You have a stage where the dragon beast drools alone. Then that dragon beast sprouts what? Ten horns. And then among the ten comes what? A little horn. Three successive stages. Is there any indication in the prophecy that there's going to be a 2,000 year parenthesis between one stage of the kingdom and the next stage of the kingdom? No, because the historical method, the reason why God gave us the historical method is so that we can know where we are in the process of prophecy at any given moment. There are no gaps. The lion is followed by the bear. The leopard follows the bear. The dragon beast follows the leopard. Then the ten horns come up on the head of the dragon beast. Then among the ten horns comes the little horn. That's the way it works. And then, of course, we're going to notice when we get to Revelation 13 that uh, this little horn has how many stages of existence? It has two stages of existence. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. So it has three stages, right? By the way, do we find the same thing in Daniel chapter 2? What were the legs made out of? Iron. Do the ten toes have iron? Is there another third element that is added afterwards? clay. See? You have the iron legs, the ten toes that have iron, and then what is added? Clay. In Daniel 7, you have the dragon beast. It sprouts ten horns, and in the midst of the ten comes what? The little horn. In other words, the little horn in Daniel 7 is the same as the clay in Daniel 2. Are you with me? Now, let's go to our next, uh, well, question number two, actually. The fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. So Rome must have had three distinct consecutive stages of existence. Okay, let's identify the little horn now. 
Is it going to be pretty easy to identify the little horn? Well, let's look at the characteristics. See, the problem is that many people just simply speculate about who the Antichrist is going to be. You know, a long time ago, in the early 1900s, people said that the Antichrist was probably Benito Mussolini. And then, of course, when Hitler was conquering Europe during the Second World War, they say, certainly Adolf Hitler has to be the Antichrist. And then a little bit later, you heard some speculation about maybe Henry Kissinger might be. I don't know whether you ever heard that or not. Then other people said, maybe the Ayatollah Khomeini. There were even books written by Christians who said that, that Khomeini might be the Antichrist. And more recently, Saddam Hussein. Just because, just because an individual is a nasty person doesn't mean that he's the Antichrist. You have to interpret prophecy in a disciplined way. You go to the Bible, you look at the characteristics, you look at the flow of history, then you say who the Antichrist is. That way you'll know for sure. Rather than just speculating. See, anybody can speculate and say, well, it's this person over here. And everybody says, oh, wonderful, I never knew that. You know, the most novel interpretation, just to make a little digression here, uh, that I've heard on Bible prophecy is, you know, in Daniel chapter 8, you have this, uh, this um, um, ram, and the ram has two horns. And suddenly you see this uh, he-goat that has one horn, and the he-goat come, comes and he smashes into the ram, and he takes over dominion. And I heard one Protestant minister on television, and I heard uh, thousands of people that were listening to him, and they were saying... Amen, hallelujah, what a tremendous interpretation of prophecy. The idea was that the ram represents the United States. And the two horns of the ram are the twin towers. <laughs> and the he-goat, because the Bible says that the he-goat was flying through the air and it didn't touch the earth, that was the American Airlines plane that smashed into the twin towers. Oh, and Christians, oh, this is wonderful. I've never heard anything like this before, but it's speculation. Because it doesn't come from a study of inside scripture. It comes from outside scripture. It is called a private interpretation of prophecy. As the Bible calls it. So we must allow the Bible to explain itself. No matter how much it hurts. Because for some people what I'm going to talk about tonight. It hurts. Because either they're in the system that is described in prophecy. Or they have friends that are in this system. But believe me, I, it's not a reflection on any person. There are true children of Christ in every church. True children of God that love Jesus. But that doesn't mean that the churches they belong to are teaching the truth. And the Bible says that when people discover the truth, the first thing that they're going to want to do is what? Is come out from where the truth is not taught. Now let's identify the little horn from inside the Bible. Number one, the little horn arose from the head of the fourth beast. Everybody agreed on that? The fourth beast represents what power? Rome. So the little horn must be Roman. Raise your hand. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Come on, don't be lazy, folks. Raise your hand. 
even if you didn't understand. <laughs> so the little horn must be Roman, right? Characteristic number two. The little horn arose among the ten horns. The ten horns represent the nations into which the Roman Empire was divided. Now, what geographical territory did the Roman Empire cover? What is known as Europe today. Western Europe. Thank you very much. That's true. The ten horns represent the nations into which the Roman Empire was divided. So the little horn must have arisen where? In Europe. Incidentally, that makes it impossible for Saddam Hussein to be a fulfillment of this prophecy. Because Saddam Hussein lives in Asia. He doesn't live in Europe. And there are many other characteristics where he doesn't fit either. He's ruled much more than three and a half years. If you take this time period to be literally like most Protestants do today. See, they don't apply the principle that time is to be understood in symbolic terms. They take everything literally, even though the Bible teaches that we're supposed to deal, we're supposed to treat these things as symbols. We're supposed to see what they mean, the meaning beyond the literal. Now, number three, the little horn arose, what? After the ten horns were in place. Are you all agreed on that? We read it, didn't we? It says, and a little one shall arise after them, after the ten. Now, listen up. The Roman Empire and its division was completed in the year 476. When a barbarian uh, invader, whose name was Odoacer, deposed the last Roman emperor. After this individual, there were no emperors of the Roman Empire anymore. His name was Romulus Augustulus. The name is in the note there. And you can read this in any history book on ancient Rome. They'll tell you that the last emperor of Rome was Romulus Augustulus, who was deposed in the year 476. This is when the ten kingdoms of Europe were complete. The division of the Roman Empire was complete in 476, which means that we must expect that this little horn power will arise after what date? It must arise after 476 because the little horn arises after the ten horns are in place. Are you following me? Now, number four. When the little horn arose to power, it uprooted what? Three of the ten horns, three of the ten kingdoms. This means that the little horn must have uprooted three of the ten kingdoms into which the Roman Empire was divided. Now, of those original ten divisions, the little horn had to uproot three. And by the way, Daniel 7 clearly says that he tore up these horns by their roots. What does that mean, by their roots? It means when you tear up a tree by its roots, that is what? That's it. It's finished. Like the fig tree, remember? Where, where Jesus looked at the fig tree, he had cursed, and it had dried up from its roots. So in other words, it was going to pluck up three kingdoms, and these kingdoms were going to disappear from history, is what Daniel 7 is saying. Number five. The little horn would speak what? 
pompous words or great words, boastful words, as some versions say, against whom? Against the Most High. And who is the Most High? God. Number six, the little horn would be what? Different than the previous ten horns. Don't want to miss that point. The little horn would be what? It would be a different kind of kingdom than the previous ten horns. Number seven, the little horn would make what? War against the saints of the Most High. Who are the saints of the Most High? Those who were true followers of Jesus, right? Those are the saints of the Most High. In other words, it would persecute God's people. Number eight, the little horn even thought it could change God's times and law. We're to look for a power who changed the times. What does it mean to change the times? We studied that very briefly last night. It means trying to change the sequence of events, prophetic events that God has established in his calendar and to establish a different kind of calendar. Are you following me? And by the way, uh, we're just barely touching the surface here. Uh, I wrote a 44-page document on the changing of the times. I studied this intensively. I exhausted all of the Bible texts that used the word times in, in a prophetic context. And it's amazing. The more I studied how I discovered that, uh, that the word times, whenever it's used in the context of prophecy, means prophetic events. In other words, what the little horn thinks he can do is God says that, that prophecy is going to develop one way and the little horn says that prophecy is going to develop a different way. And then it says here that he would also think that he could change God's what? God's law. Which law? The Ten Commandments. God's Ten Commandment law. We have to look for a power who claimed that he could change God's law. Number eight. Well, that is number eight. Let's read the note. The word times refers to God's calendar of prophetic events. When the disciples asked Jesus after his resurrection if he would then restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus replied, it is not for you to know what? Times or seasons which the Father has put on his own authority. The law in this verse refers to the Ten Commandments. In some way, the little horn would claim the right to change God's holy law. As far as I know, Saddam Hussein has never done that. <laughs> and Saddam Hussein is not into the study of Bible prophecy, so he hasn't changed God's calendar of events at all. Neither did Hitler nor Mussolini. But there is a power that did do this, that came from the ancient Roman Empire. Number nine, the little horn's rulership would be limited, limited to a time and times and the dividing of time. Now, what does this mean? Time, times, and the dividing of time. Well, the word time is used to refer to years. For example, you remember when Nebuchadnezzar uh, went out of his mind? It's in Daniel chapter 4. God didn't say seven years will pass over you. He said seven what? Seven times will pass over you. Times refers to what? To years. But listen to what I'm going to say. When in Hebrew, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, when in Hebrew the word times is used without a qualifying number with it, 
It's the dual. It means two times. In other words, whenever you find times without a number next to the word times, it's assumed that it means two. And by the way, there's no scholar in the whole wide world who would even question this. No matter what denomination they belong to, all agree, all the ones that I've read, agree that this is referring time is one year, times is two year, two years, and the dividing of time is half a year. In other words, you're dealing with how many years? Three and a half years. Now, let's uh, do some figuring here. You have 3.5 years. This period is also spoken of as what? It's also spoken of, we're going to see this in Revelation chapter 13 in a moment. It's spoken also of as 42 months. And it's also referred to as 1,260 days. These three periods are the same. You say, how do we know that? Very simple. Let's multiply 3.5 years. And each year has uh, how many days? In the Bible, a Bible year has 360 days. I hope you looked up the references that I gave here. Genesis 8, 3 and 4, and Genesis 7, 11. That's your homework if you didn't do it. You have to look up the text in the parentheses too. Not only fill in the blank. This will prove to you that the biblical month has 30 days and that the biblical year has 360 days. And by the way, if the biblical year has 360 days, then the biblical month must have 30 days. It's in, it's in your note, under number 9. Now, 360 days for each year, times three and a half years gives you how much? 1,260 days. Now about 42 months. 42 months, each month having how many days? 30 days gives you how much? 1,260 days. And so in prophecy, when you find time times the dividing of time, when you find 1,260 days, when you find 42 months, it means the same period, the same prophetic period. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Good. But in prophecy, a day is equal to what? A day is equal to a year. And so we're dealing with 1,260 years that the little horn governs. I'm telling you folks, there's not very many powers that could fulfill this. In fact, I only know one that has been around for that long. You look at any of the modern nations, they don't go that far back. There's only one power that goes that far back. And we're going to notice that in a moment. Now, so far so good? Raise your hand if you're with me. Does it make sense? What are we doing? See, prophecy has to make sense. It has to be simple, it has to make sense. You can't just stand up and, and say, this means this and this means that. How come? Well, because it sounds good. Ah, or because such and such an authority said it. No, you have to allow the Bible to explain itself from within. See, the Bible is its own interpreter. This is a very important Protestant principle. Doesn't matter what church you belong to. 
It's the principle of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura. In Latin, Scripture alone. It means that Scripture interprets itself from inside. You don't impose an explanation from outside. Now, let's go to the beast and the little horn. And I want to put, I want to erase this, and I'm going to put on the board a parallel. You have a lion. We're going to put a parallel between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. You have a lion. You have a bear. You have a leopard. You have a dragon beast. The dragon beast sprouts ten horns. Then you have what? A little horn. And uh, let's, uh, well, let's leave it there for now. Okay, now Revelation chapter 13. Let's read verses 1 and 2. And then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, not his head, but blasphemous name. Now the feet that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Thank you. How many beasts do you have in verse 2? How many? You have one beast, yes, but you have several different beasts uh, mentioned. Thank you. Very good. There are four. What are the four? The lion, the bear, the leopard, and what? The How many horns does the dragon have? Go back with me to Revelation 12, where the dragon is first introduced. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and what? Ten horns. So how many horns does the dragon have? Ten. Has ten horns. Okay, now, what I want you to notice, which is very interesting here, is that in Daniel chapter 7, you have lion, bear, leopard, dragon. But in Revelation chapter 13, the order is reversed. Now let me ask you this. When is John writing the book of Revelation? What kingdom is ruling when John is writing Revelation? Which is what? The dragon. Are you all agreed? What empire sent John to Patmos? To exile. Rome. So John is living in the period of what? Of the dragon. Whereas John is living in the period of the dragon and he's looking backwards. Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. See, prophecy makes sense. When you just look at the text. Look at, at what it's saying. So in other words, Daniel is living here. And John is living here. And Daniel therefore see these, sees these beasts as future, whereas John sees these beasts as what? Yeah. As past. But there, are they still the same beasts? Yeah. Yes. Now let's notice Revelation chapter 13. Is there a lion in Revelation 13? Yes, there is. Is there a bear? Most certainly. Is there a leopard? Absolutely. Is there a dragon beast? Yes. How many horns does the dragon beast have? The dragon beast has ten horns. And in Daniel chapter 7, where did the little horn come from? 
It came from the head of the dragon beast. Now the question is, where does the beast come from? Where does the beast receive its authority from? From the dragon. Now let's put here, beast. The little horn receives its authority from whom? From the dragon, because it comes from the head of the dragon. In, da in Revelation chapter 13, the beast receives his what? The beast receives his authority from whom? His authority from the dragon. So, is the little horn, as well as the beast, the same power? Does it represent the same power? Yes. In the sequence, it represents the very same power. Are you following me? Yes? Should I review it again? Let me review it again. This is so important. This is foundational for, for practically everything we're going to study in this seminar is understanding what we're talking about tonight. Is there a lion in both prophecies? Is there a bear in both prophecies? Is there a leopard in both prophecies? Is there a dragon beast in both prophecies? Are there ten horns on the head of the dragon in each prophecy? But in Daniel chapter 7, what comes from the fourth beast? A little horn. In Revelation 13, what comes from the dragon beast? The dragon beast gives the beast his authority and his power. The little horn then is the same as the beast. Now, not only do we know that because of the sequence of powers, but we also know it by the characteristics that the beast has in Revelation 13. Do we have many of the same characteristics that the beast has that we saw about the little horn? Sure, let's notice the answers to this section, the beast and the little, uh, and the little horn, yes. Well, any power can give any, uh, another power uh, their authority and their throne if they wish. Well, it's not the same power. The dragon beast is the Roman Empire. The ten horns are the ten divisions of the Roman Empire. And then Rome, with its ten divisions, gives its throne, its power, and authority to whom? To the beast. The beast is the power that receives uh, its, uh, the throne and the authority from the dragon beast. Oh, that's what we're looking at. We can't identify the beast yet until we've seen all the characteristics. In the, lesson, the lesson says very clearly, if you read all the way through the end, what power is represented here. Uh, but let's, let's go to the beast and the little horn. A careful comparison of Daniel 7 with Revelation 13, 1 through 10, shows that the little horn represents the same historical power as the beast. Notice the similarities. We've studied number one already. The order of powers in Daniel 7 is important. Lion, bear, leopard, dragon, beast, ten horns, little horn. Notice how the order of the same powers, uh, how the order is the same in Revelation 13, 1 and 2. Leopard, bear, lion, dragon, ten horns, and beast. You will notice that the lion, bear, leopard beasts are in reverse order in Revelation 3, 13, verse 2, and I already explained the reason why. But the dragon, ten horns, beast are in the same order as the dragon, ten horns, and little horn of Daniel 7. Did you notice that? In other words, lion, bear, and leopard are in reverse order. But when you get to dragon, ten horns, and little horn, and dragon, ten horns, and beast, they're in the same order. Because in both cases, they are what? They're future. Are you catching my point? Yes. Now, notice some other interesting details. Number two, 
The dragon gave the beast his what? His power, his throne and great authority. Number three, the beast of Revelation 13 made what? War. War. With whom? With the saints and overcame them. Is this the same thing that the little horn did? Sure. The beast of Revelation 13 opened his mouth in what? Blasphemies against God. Is this the same thing the little horn did in Daniel 7? Only now it's called blasphemies. In Daniel 7, it's called what? Pompous words. Here, the pompous words are identified as blasphemies. What are blasphemies, by the way? Jesus was accused of blasphemy by his enemies because he claimed to be God and because he said he could forgive sins. So in other words, the little horn must be a power who claims to have God on earth and who claims to have the power to forgive sins. Are you with me? The beast of Revelation 13 was what? Given authority to rule for how long? 42 months. Is that the same as time, times, and the dividing of time? It most certainly is. But now I want you to notice that an additional detail is given. Do you remember that last, time, last night I mentioned that the, the feet of iron and clay have two stages of existence? Remember that? And by the way, I hope you'll come Saturday night. Because Saturday night, we're going to study Revelation 12. Revelation 12 runs parallel to Daniel 7 and to Revelation 13. It's amazing. Only it gives many more details that are not found in Daniel 7 or in Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to notice in our study of Daniel of, of Revelation chapter 12 that this last power, the little horn power or the beast power, has two stages of existence. It has one stage that is in the past, but it has another stage in the future. In other words, what this power did during the 1260 years in the past, it will do worldwide at the end of time. Because during the 1260 years, it did it in Europe, according to this prophecy, among the ten horns. But at the end of time, the Bible says that the whole world will wonder after the beast. Do you think it's important to know who the beast is so you don't wonder after it? Yes. You're not talking about academic issues here. We're not talking about having head knowledge. We're talking about issues that have to do with salvation. Because the Bible says that there will be only two groups at the end of time. And I believe we're very close to the end of time. Two groups. Those who follow the beast and those who follow the Lamb. So we need to know who the beast is so that we make sure we don't follow him. Now, notice number six. At the end of the 42 months, the beast was to receive a deadly wound by the sword and would be led into captivity. Notice, double punishment. The sword and what? Captivity. But after a period of time, the deadly wound would be healed. And all the world would wonder after the beast. Now, where are we supposed to look for the little horn? Do you think the little horn has already ruled? Has the little horn already ruled? Yes. Or are we supposed to look for some nasty individual who's going to sit in the Jerusalem temple for three and a half years way in the future? See, the problem with that interpretation is, you, you know, the Roman Empire comes to an end and then you have a 2,000 year gap before the little horn is fulfilled. 
But as we've noticed in our study, these powers rule in unbroken sequence. Have you seen that? With no gaps, with no interruptions. So in other words, when the Roman Empire is divided into ten kingdoms, shortly thereafter you expect what? You expect the little horn to arise. And let me tell you something which might surprise many of you, and that is that all of the Protestant reformers, whether it be Luther, or John Calvin, or John Wesley, or Ulrich Swingley, and some of the lesser known reformers, Melanchthon, etc., Every single one of them, without exception, believed in the interpretation that I'm sharing with you tonight. Every single one of them. But today, you would have to look like for a needle in a haystack to find a Protestant that would believe what I'm teaching you tonight. Because the interpretation of this prophecy has been shifted. And I'm going to talk to you in a few moments about who shifted it? This is the amazing thing. Now let, look, let's look at what power fulfills this. And once again, I want to underline, folks, this. What I'm going to say is no reflection on people. Jesus loves all people. And there are many true children of, of Christ in every single church in the world. Many of them are even more loving than many Seventh-day Adventists. I'll just be open and honest with you. But that does not mean that the systems that they belong to are systems of truth. You have to separate the systems from the people. You say, well, how can we do that? Well, can you love the sinner and at the same time hate the sin? Can you love people and hate the system that deceives people? Yes, you can. And I love you tonight no matter what denomination you belong to. Doesn't make any difference. I'll give you a hug even if you're a new ager. <laughs> if you're an atheist. Because I believe we're supposed to love one another. But that doesn't mean that I agree that what you believe is true. Now let's notice the characteristics that we've analyzed. And unfortunately, I'm trying to share with you 130 pages of research that I have done uh, in just the 15 minutes that we have left. If any of you would like to have all of the evidence, the corroborating historical evidence, well documented, I mean with one quotation right after another from uh, sources of the church that we're going to talk about now, you're welcome to get this material. Just uh, We'll make a list. Uh, I'm, you're welcome to have the 130 pages. For a very nominal fee, of course. <laughs> nominal, like $5. Does that sound like a good deal? 430 pages? Man, you can't beat that, can you? That's selling at a loss. <laughs> but what's a loss to me is a gain to you. So I'm happy. Now let's notice the characteristics. Number one. Let me just say that uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that the power being spoken of here is the Roman Catholic papacy. All of the characteristics fit. Let's notice the reasons. Number one, the Roman Catholic papacy did arise from the Roman Empire, did it not? And actually took its place, all historians say this, there's not a single exception. 
Its headquarters are where? In Rome. Its language is? Latin. Its leader is called the Supreme Pontiff, which is the very name that was given to the Roman Emperor. And even Roman Catholic writers, if you get this material, there's an abundance of quotations from Roman Catholic scholars where they say, we recognize that most of the practices that we have in our church come from paganism. Roman Catholic authors admit that. They say, during the times of Constantine, these practices came in from the pagans, and the reason why we adopted these practices was so the pagans would feel comfortable in the church. Not Protestants don't say that. Catholic scholars. I have some quotations, for example, from Cardinal Gibbons and Cardinal Manning. No relation to Brad Manning, of course. Uh, <laughs> where they say this. See, they don't hide it. They admit it. So the Roman Catholic Church is Roman in more ways than one. Number two, the Roman Catholic papacy did arise to power after the Roman Empire had been carved into ten kingdoms by the invading barbarians. In fact, historians will show you, and I have about seven or eight pages of quotations from different historians to, to uh, corroborate this fact, they'll tell you that the papacy actually came to rule over these kingdoms. Number three, the Roman Catholic papacy did arise among the ten kingdoms into which the Roman Empire was divided because the Roman Catholic papacy did arise in Western Europe, did it not? Which was, by the way, the very capital of the Roman Empire, interestingly enough. Number four, the Roman Catholic papacy did uproot three of the ten kingdoms. And I wish I had time to, to amplify this point. If you do get the material, I invite you to read it. There are several pages on this. It's a fascinating story. Of those ten kingdoms, there were three kingdoms that were considered heretical by the church. They taught heresy. They believed that Jesus was a created being. Uh, they followed the teachings of uh, a theologians whose name was Arius, who is the father of uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they teach that Jesus was the first creation of God. We believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is everlasting God. He's the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He didn't have a beginning. He's as eternal as his Father. But Arius taught that Jesus was the first creature of God. And so it was necessary to uproot these three kingdoms. And through the influence of the Bishop of Rome, as the Pope was called back then, the Heruli were uprooted in the year 493. The Vandals, where we get our word vandalism from, were uprooted in the year 534. And the last kingdom, which was a very strong kingdom, was difficult to uproot, was the Ostrogoths. And they were uprooted by, the, by Justinian, the general of the armies of the empire. He uprooted them in the year 538. And the interesting thing is, none of these kingdoms have a trace after they were uprooted. In fact, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of visit, visiting Ravenna, which was the place of the last stand of the Ostrogoths. And all you find there uh, in Ravenna that would even give you an idea that there was such a thing as an Ostrogothic kingdom is a mausoleum where uh, their king was buried. But the interesting thing is uh, even his body isn't there because his body was taken out by uh, several centuries uh, 
uh, later, after his death, his body was taken out and discarded. Nobody knows where it is. So all you do, all you have there, is the mausoleum with an empty box. That's the only mem memory that you have of the Ostrogothic kingdom. No memory of the Vandal kingdom. No memory memory of the Heruli. They totally disappeared from history, uprooted by the Bishop of Rome. Well, the, I don't want to get into a debate about Christology right now, but let me say what the Bible means when it says that Jesus was the beginning of God's creation. The word means that he was the beginner of God's creation. It doesn't mean that he was the beginning of God's creation or the first thing that God created. It means that he was the beginner of God's creation. He initiated God's creation. When you look at the, at the Greek word and what it means in the original language, it's not speaking about Jesus being the first creature of God. It's talking about all creation having its origin in him. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, um, you know, we could talk about the Trinity. How can three people be one? Well, let me ask you, how can a husband and wife be one? Does the Bible say that when a man and a woman are joined in marriage, they're no longer two but one? Huh? Jesus says they're no longer two but what? But one. Now, wait a minute. Uh, Brad and Loretta are married, but I see two. But Jesus says they're what? They're one. Folks, the Trinity simply means that there are three persons in perfect unity. So probably it would be more proper to call this doctrine the doctrine of the triunity rather than the doctrine of the Trinity. Because there are three persons in perfect unity. They have the same powers, they have the same mind, they have the same purpose. They always work in perfect harmony. But let's not talk anymore about the Trinity because we have to get through this. Okay, number five. The Roman Catholic papacy does speak blasphemies against God. Because it claims that the Pope is God on earth. And I have several quotations from Roman Catholic scholars and from popes where they say, we occupy on this earth the place of God Almighty, Pope Leo said. We occupy on this earth the place of God Almighty. And there are scores of statements that I have where the papacy claims that the vicar of Christ the word vicar means the representative or the substitute of Christ on earth is the Pope. And of course you all know that the Roman Catholic papacy claims to have the power to forgive what? Amen. To forgive sins. You can go to the confessional and the priest will absolve you from your sins. What is blasphemy according to the Bible? It's when somebody who's a human claims to be God and when he claims to have the power to what? To forgive sins. This is what really irked Martin Luther. Besides the selling of indulgences. The buying and selling of forgiveness and sin by, of sin by a human power. By the way, the Roman Catholic papacy, uh, the Pope insists on being called Holy Father, though Jesus says, call, said, call no man your father on earth. He permits people to bow before him and kiss his ring. It used to be that he had, they had to kiss his feet. And this is interesting because Peter, when Cornelius knelt before him, Peter said, don't you kneel, stand up. I'm a man like you are. Even angels refused to have anyone bow before them. Yes. 
What did you mean by the selling of indulgences? Selling of indulgences? Uh, you know, there was a famous man called Tetzel, uh, who was in the district where Martin Luther lived. And what they did, they would sell uh, in order to build the Basilica of St. Peter, in, uh, Saint, known as St. Peter's in, in Rome. They were raising money. And what they would do is they would write a note where people's sins were totally forgiven if they paid a certain amount to build the Basilica. And there was a man who was selling indulgences. His name was Tetzel. And he would say, the moment the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And Luther said, come on now. You can't buy salvation by paying money to build a basilica. Besides, he said, human beings can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. The Roman Catholic Church claims that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he is infallible. My Bible tells me that there's only one who is infallible, God. The Roman Catholic Pope throughout history has claimed to be able to depose kings and set up kings. We read last night that only God has the right to set up kings and to depose kings. The Roman Catholic Church claims that the Pope is the absolute judge on earth. The Bible tells me that Jesus is the only one who can judge. So on several counts, the Roman Catholic papacy fulfills this uh, detail about speaking blasphemies against the Most High. Number six, the papacy was different, and by the way, still is, than the previous ten kingdoms because it was and still is an amalgamation of what? An amalgamation of church and state. When the United States was going to set up diplomatic relations with the papacy in 1989, by the way, interesting how times change. You know, when Truman was talking about setting up diplomatic relations with the Vatican, the Protestant churches went up into an uproar, and Truman said, well, let's just not bother to do this. But when Ronald Reagan wanted to set up diplomatic relations with the Vatican, uh, which, by the way, is a violation of the constitutional separation of church and state, the question was, how can the United States form diplomatic relations with the Vatican if the Vatican is a church? And the argument was, well, no, the United States would only uh, have uh, diplomatic relations with the state part of the Vatican. But the fact is, you can't separate the state and the church part because the Pope is the leader of both church and state. See, the, the, the papacy is a church state. It's different than any of the other kingdoms. The other kingdoms were political kingdoms. The papacy is a religious political system. And by the way, the papacy wants to join church and state in the United States and has made great inroads in bringing about this union of church and state. Number seven, the Roman Catholic papacy did persecute the faithful people of, the, of God for 1260 years through mechanisms such as the Inquisition. Historians have documented and even Roman Catholic scholars have admitted that millions were slaughtered by the church, handed over to the civil power, simply because they disagreed with the teachings of the church. This is documented in history. And you say, well, the Roman Catholic papacy has apologized, the Pope apologized. Listen, he did not apologize for what the church did, he apologized for what certain of our brethren have done. In this document, I have, I have an analysis of about 12 to 13 pages on what the Pope had to say in his apology. And if you read carefully what he says, it's really no apology at all for what the church did. Slaughtering millions of people, burning them at the stake, and their only crime, confiscating their goods, 
throwing them into exile simply because they didn't agree with the church. I've been in palaces of the Inquisition in the Dominican Republic, in Cartagena, Colombia. It's amazing to see all of the equipment that was used to torture people to get a confession out of them. This power did persecute the saints of the Most High. By the way, the true church during this period was the church that was fleeing. It was the church in exile. It was not the institutional church. We're going to find that in our study Saturday night. Number eight. The Roman Catholic papacy did attempt to change God's prophetic calendar. Do you know where most of the Protestant interpretations come from today? The idea that prophecy is going to fulfill over in the Middle East and the temple is going to be rebuilt and the, uh, there's going to be a personal antichrist that's going to sit over there for three and a half years. Uh, do you know where all this scenario comes from? It comes from a Jesuit priest called Ribera. You see, after the Protestant Reformation, after Luther and Calvin and the reformers were using the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation to say the papacy fulfills these prophecies, the, the, the Church of Rome had to distract people's minds from that view of prophecy that was being presented by the reformers. And so they said, how can we do this? So Ribera came up with the idea, well, you know, we can, in, instead of saying that the, that the little horn or the beast is being fulfilled now, we can say, no, no, that's an individual who's going to rise in the future. He hasn't arisen yet. And I can prove historically that these ideas that Protestants are teaching today came directly from the Jesuit priest uh, Francisco Ribera of Spain. In other words, Protestants are teaching what the Roman Catholic Church created to arrest the Protestant Reformation. And another priest whose name is Luis de Alcázar, he invented a different scenario. He said, no, no, these prophecies about the little horn, the beast, that was all fulfilled with the Roman emperors way back when. It was fulfilled with a man who lived 165 years before Christ. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. So, so if these Antichrist prophecies were fulfilled way in the past or are going to be fulfilled way in the future, then the papacy has nothing to do with Bible prophecy. Are you following me? In other words... The Roman Catholic Church has changed the times and Protestants have followed along. That's why Protestants are looking at the Middle East. That's why the devil, the devil stirs up the Middle East. Because the more he stirs it up, the more people look over there for the fulfillment of prophecy when prophecy is being fulfilled in Rome. And they're looking in the wrong place. Now, number nine. The Roman Catholic papacy does claim to have changed God's holy law by deleting the second commandment that says you're not supposed to worship images. You look in Roman Catholic catechisms, the second commandment is gone. And they have to divide the tenth commandment into two. Don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't cover, covet your neighbor's goods. See, they have to divide the tenth commandment not to covet into two to end up with ten because they delete the second one. And of course, later on, we're going to talk about how the Roman Catholic papacy claims to have changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Amazing. Claims to have changed God's law. I wish I had time to read you statement after statement. I have 20 pages of statement from the, statements from the Roman Catholic Church themselves, from priests, from cardinals, from scholars, where they say, our church changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And of course, Protestants follow along in that also, thinking that it's biblical when it comes from a different source. Eddie? What's the percentage of uh, the percentages of that people that go to church on Sunday compared to the percentage that go on Sabbath? 
oh, I have no idea percentages, but probably it's uh, 90 for 95 or more percent that go on Sunday and 5% or less that go to church on Saturday. But you see, observing the Sabbath is not an issue of which day you go to church. Because the Bible teaches that the day of worship begins at sundown on Friday and ends on sundown at Saturday, and you're not supposed to do any of your secular affairs during that whole time period. So it's not a question of going to church and then going out to play golf. Or going to church and then going out to uh, uh, go out shopping. That's not the issue. See, that's, that's not keeping the seventh day holy, the Sabbath holy. That's keeping the Sabbath from 9 to 12 holy. The whole Sabbath day is holy. And I don't want you to think that, oh, God imposes this. Listen, God gave us the Sabbath because he wants us to be happy. He wants us to have a whole day where we can unwind and forget our things and we can remember only him. I don't know about you, I need that day. Even though I work harder that day than any other day. But it's permitted. Because the priests work twice as hard. But God said, because it's holy work, it's permitted. Okay, number 10. The Roman Catholic papacy did rule for a period of 1260 years. Exactly. Listen to what I'm going to say. It was in February of 538 that the Ostrogoths were finally defeated. And it was February 10, 1798, that General Berthier, at the conclusion of the French Revolution, went into the Vatican, arrested Pope Pius VI, and took him, and he died in exile in France. February 538 to February 1798. He who leads into captivity will be taken into captivity. He led God's people captive, he was taken captive. And he who kills with the sword, the French Revolution, you know about the guillotine. They destroyed the nobility and they destroyed the priesthood and the prelates. During the French Revolution, this was literally fulfilled. Number 11. The papacy did receive a mortal wound during the French Revolution. In this material I wrote, there's a fascinating series of quotations. For example, from Malachi Martin, a Jesuit priest, who's dead now. He died under mysterious circumstances. But he speaks about 200 years of inactivity that have been imposed on the Roman Catholic Church by the major secular powers of the world. Because in the French Revolution, the state removed its support of the Roman Catholic papacy. The deadly womb does not mean that the papacy was going to disappear. It means that the papacy could now no longer use the civil power to accomplish its purposes. And in the French Revolution, the civil power was removed. France says, no more will you use the civil power to accomplish your purposes. That's the deadly wound. And the deadly wound will be healed when the Roman Catholic papacy will once again be able to use the civil powers of the world to persecute. Because the Bible says that its deadly wound is going to be healed. And it's interesting, you know, you look at, uh, you look at what happened in 1798 when the Pope was taken captive. There was not a country in the whole wide world that wanted to have diplomatic relations with the Vatican. Everybody stood back. I have bunches of quotations from historians in this material where, where they, no, we don't want anything to do with that power. How different it is today. Do you know that the Vatican has more diplomatic relations with more countries in the world than the United States does? About 50 countries more the Vatican has diplomatic relations with than the United States. That's amazing. And of course you know it's power and prestige. How it's grown tremendously. Prophecy is certainly being fulfilled. 
Well, I'll leave the last section. We're going to talk about this when we deal with Daniel 8. Maybe next time as we begin, we'll, we'll touch upon uh, the judgment of the little horn. Uh, but let's do our quiz. Very quick here. We have a lot of material to cover tonight. And I encourage you to get this material. Uh, maybe Jane, if we could do a list. Jane, are you back there? Maybe you can get a sheet of paper where people can write down their names, uh, those who want to get this material, so you can read the full uh, fulfillment of what we've talked about tonight. Uh, let's do our quiz. Question number one. True or false? The beast and the little horn represent the same power. True or false? The beast of Revelation 13 and the little horn of Daniel 7 represent the same power. True or false? Number two. Daniel 7 is divided into how many parts? Daniel 7. Remember he said the materials repeated uh, mm? yes mm, number of times. <laughs> number 3. The fourth empire had how many stages? Remember we said that the fourth empire has a certain number of stages? <laughs> number 4. True or false? There is a gap of over 2,000 years between the ten horns and the little horn. True or false? There is a gap of over 2,000 years between the fulfillment of the ten horns and the little horn. And number five. True or false? The Antichrist is Saddam Hussein. <laughs> now, if you put false, you've got to say why. Let me ask you, why can he not be the Antichrist? First, first of all, he's not from Europe. So, so that disqualifies. Does the fulfillment have to fulfill every single characteristic? Yes, and only the Roman Catholic papacy fits all of them. Especially the time period of 1260 years. There's only one power in the world that you can say goes that far back and dominated the world during that long period. Okay. Number one is what? True. Number two, the answer is what? Four. Four. Number three, the answer is? Two. Three. 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 Number four, the answer is? False. False. And number five, the answer is? False. False. How many got 100%? Praise the Lord. What a tremendous group of students. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.